This episode of Halloween Unmasked is brought to you by AMC Network's Shudder, the premium video streaming service for all of you creeps and ghouls out there who want to get spooked out this Halloween season and every day. Every day is Halloween. At Shudder, you can stream an amazing collection of horror movies ad-free, just $4.99 a month or $49 for the entire year. And you know what? Try it for free right now. Go to Shudder.com slash podcast and use the promo code UNMASKED. That's Shudder.com slash podcast and use the promo code UNMASKED. Now let's get on with the show. Please stop. Please. is in the living room with Michael Myers, and she is scared to death. It's dark and shadowy, and she's petrified. And then he pops up from behind the couch with a knife. <laughs> Michael stabs the couch, and she jabs him in the neck with a knitting needle, and then he falls to the ground. And from there, Lori does a couple frustrating things. She picks up Michael's knife and she throws it away. She should check his corpse. She should stab him again to make sure he's dead. But instead, she limps upstairs to check on the children. I'm going to take a little walk. Look at the boogeyman. I'm scared. There's nothing to be scared of. Are you sure? Lori nods. She doesn't see the shadows changing behind her. Michael, a very alive Michael, is coming up the stairs. I killed him. You can't kill the boogeyman. Lori has got to get out of the house. Instead, she hides in a closet where Michael finds her right away. You know, we try to get ourselves into the safest position possible, which for her was, you know, just going all the way to the back of the closet and trying to surround herself with walls. That's not rational thought. Hiding in the closet is pure instinct, which makes sense because fear is our most primal emotion. Fight or flight, the survival instinct that humans share with every animal, from cats to deer to cockroaches. But only humans do something unique. We choose to be scared, to pay money to let technicians like John Carpenter use lighting and music to hammer on our nervous system, to have a blast yelling at Laurie Strode to not hide in that closet. Margie Kerr is a sociologist who studies fear, and she's thought a lot about the closet scene in Halloween, about why Laurie Strode does what we are begging her not to do, and why Laurie's terror makes us scream. And I thought that 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 whole scene was so well scripted and directed because it captures so many different elements of of fear. Um, And uh, so I think about that scene a lot and just how helpless, you know, she must have felt in that location. You know, she wanted to protect herself, but in the end ended up, you know, trapping herself, uh, essentially. And I just, I think that that all really captures the feeling of true fear. You know, when you're helpless, you can't just, you can't have any sense of control over your environment. Margie uses what she's learned about fear two different ways. She's written a book called Scream, Chilling Adventures in the Science of Fear. And, and I love this, she also designs haunted houses. Maybe I, Amy Nicholson, the host of Halloween Unmasked, should not admit this, but I cannot handle haunted houses. Still, I am fascinated by people who love screaming for their lives. As a cautionary heads up, we're going to hear a real-life 911 call later in the show from a horror fan who took his obsession with Halloween too far. That will be later in the show, and I will give another warning then if you'd like to skip ahead or make sure that no one impressionable is listening. Because fear, human's most basic emotion, it's also tied to our most beautiful one, empathy. Fear and empathy are intertwined. The human brain is really incredible. We are able to feel the emotions of an experience, even though we may not be directly involved in it. Well, so then what happens 
in our brains and in our bodies when we watch a horror film? When we watch a horror film, there's a bunch of different changes that start happening in our body. Um, first, we're already preparing ourselves for something scary, so the anticipation starts to build immediately. And uh, we know something is going to happen, um, but we don't know when, and so any startle is going to activate our threat response. And we've got adrenaline, uh, noradrenaline, cortisol, endorphins, uh, dopamine, serotonin, all of these different chemicals start coursing through our body, helping us uh, become strong, fast, and focused. When we're scared, our bodies literally prepare to run for our lives. Intellectually, sure, yeah, you know that Michael Myers isn't real, but your lizard brain, it isn't so sure. And that makes your whole body feel alive. Plus, who loves to watch horror films with a fistful of Twizzlers or peanut M&Ms or a giant Coke? Junk food adds to that physical rush. Our body starts turning any available sugar into energy, getting that out to our muscles. And that's why we start to feel kind of fully energized and primal, more strong and just ready to to jump uh, or fight or flee. And so our body becomes you know, super activated. Our skin temperature goes up uh, as our body is, you know, trying to, to be the most fuel efficient that it can. And we sweat, our pupils dilate. All of these changes are happening to prepare us for, for uncertainty, to, to face what danger may come. So even though you know that Michael's not going to stab you, you're ready for him. And your body feels great. You are deliberately, wonderfully, miserably alive, like Halloween's little girl, Lindsay Wallace, who will not turn off the scary movie on TV. Lock your doors, bolt your windows, and turn off the lights. Don't go away, because here's a scene. I'm scared. Why are you sitting here with all the lights off? I don't know. She doesn't know, but she knows she loves it. I want to stay here and watch this. A lot of people feel almost a sense of euphoria. And part of that is because endorphins and neurotransmitters like dopamine and serotonin are also released during those high arousal states. And in the absence of real threat, we can, you know, use those in a way that feels good, that makes us feel, you know, kind of relaxed and and even a little just kind of chilled out. Margie has even hooked up people to electrodes to measure the changes in brainwaves before and after doing something scary. And she's seen firsthand that that is why you leave a horror movie feeling awesome. And that is part of what keeps you buying tickets to them in the first place. I mean, we live pretty safe lives, safer than our ancestors at least. But scary flicks let our body chemicals have a blast. Even if you're not consciously thinking about dopamine and serotonin, you're aware that going to a movie like Halloween is great if you have a crush. Is any of this at all connected to why people pick out horror films for, like, dates? Yes, yeah. So scary movies can be really good for dates because when we're with people uh, that we like in a highly intense situation like a scary movie, uh, we bond more closely to them. Um, And so it is true, you know, you really do kind of bond with the people that you're with under these high stress or, or fun, scary activities. Um, All of your chemicals are, are, you know, working to create that high arousal experience. And, uh, you know, if you're with somebody that you're like, or you're attracted to, it can intensify those feelings. Michael Myers, matchmaker. And that bonding sensation is also why horror movies are way, way, way better in theaters when you're surrounded by people instead of just at home on the couch. 
it does intensify the emotional experience. So you hear your friends laughing or just even strangers laughing or screaming, and you start doing the same. And it really does bond people and create a sense of um, of solidarity, a sense that you know, you're know you all in this together. And it, it is, um, Durkheim called it the collective effervescence. You know, you feel that, that shared uh, emotional kind of bonding. That makes me think we could solve the world's problems if we just put everybody in America in a giant horror movie. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, when we ask people how close they feel to each other afterwards, people do feel more close. You know, you've shared this highly emotional experience and, you know, you, you've been bonded. You've been brought together. Of course, some movies are scarier than others. I'm sure you've seen horror films where you really just bonded with your friends over how boring it was. Filmmakers have tricks they use to freak audiences out, and John Carpenter uses them a lot better than a lot of movies I'm not going to bother to pick on. So, let's analyze why Halloween is so scary, the technical choices that John Carpenter made that had people losing their minds. Because when you think about it, this is a movie without that many murders. Michael kills his sister, Judith Myers, at the beginning, and then a full 50 minutes goes by with babysitters talking about boys before Laurie's curly-haired friend Annie gets stabbed in the car. And even then, there's no shocking gore. There's nothing, ugh, that makes us flinch. There's also almost no jump scares, that scary movie cliche of walking down a quiet, dark hallway, something so overdone that even the sitcom community made fun of it. Jeez! <laughs> it was just a cat. Let's keep moving. <laughs> Holy crap! What is up with that cat? Is someone throwing it? Let's keep I... moving. Let's not keep moving because there is an insane cat down here. Well, what about the zombies? Backburner, Troy. This cat has to be dealt with. When your scare tactics work best on community, I am not impressed. Halloween has two proper fake-out jump scares. One, when Laurie bumps into Sheriff Brackett on the street. And then again, when the rain gutter smashes through the window of the old Myers place and Dr. Loomis freaks out and grabs his gun. Oh, I, I do have a permit. Seems to me you're just playing scared. Jump scares work the way that hitting your funny bone with a hammer works. But I'm glad that Halloween only has two, because I think they're often a little cheap. Compared to that pleasurable roller coaster of terror that Margie describes... Jump scares are more like someone kicking the back of your chair. When I see movies that are just, you know, jump scare after jump scare, it is exhausting. You know, you you do kind of get saturated from it and it doesn't really feel like uh, a fulfilling, um, you know, scare. It just feels like, okay, I get it. You know, lots of jump scares. Instead, John Carpenter chose to build suspense. Michael Myers has his knife and John Carpenter has anticipation. That is what a good horror movie is. When you buy a ticket to a scary movie, you know that something bad is coming. The fun is that you don't know when. The slow burn is is where you become invested in the story and you, you know, start caring about the characters and when it's slow, you do get more invested and so the the scares feel more um more real, really. Uh, and then the payoff is 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 bigger. That patience isn't just about the plot. It's also in the camera work. Picture the shots in Halloween. Picture Laurie walking to school and walking home. Think about how far away the camera stays from Laurie. John Carpenter and his director of photography, Dean Cundy, talked about leaving big, blank spaces, 
wide streets, giant front yards, exposed windows, so that we, the audience, would have to nervously scan all the corners of the screen to see where Michael Myers might be coming. It is mental torture. It is delightful mental torture. And only in the last 10 minutes, when Laurie finally meets Michael, when we know exactly where Michael is, does the camera let us spend time with her up close, to stare right into her face as she screams. Dean Cundy, who helped design those shots, was producer Deborah Hill's hire. She'd met Dean while he was doing the cinematography for a bunch of sexploitation thrillers with names like Creature from Black Lake and Ilsa, Harem Keeper of the Oil Sheiks. They both worked on a movie called Satan's Cheerleaders, where after playing sexy tackle football, a pom-pom squad gets interrogated to see if any of them qualifies to be the devil's virgin bride. Stop me, goon! Is she the unsoiled maiden? Is she the one chosen to be your bride? Are you kidding me? I'm no maiden. I've been a cheerleader for three years. The truth. They they were what what I called something that they wanted for drive-in theaters, projector fodder, because there had to be something running on the screen to semi-entertain the, the couple in the back seat. And they were not scary. When Dean first got hired to be the cinematographer for this babysitter murders movie, he figured it might just be more of the same. But then he met John. John was the first director I met who had the same sensibilities as I, which is to use the camera to tell a visual story. To, to, to tell the story, he was very much about using the camera to take the audience on this emotional journey. How you use the camera is what can create the suspense. How you compose a shot creates suspense. If you put a character way off to one side of the frame, your eye tends to look at the empty part and say, what's going to happen over there? And your eye always goes to the part of the frame that's got new information incoming. Especially at night. When the sun goes down, Dean didn't turn on all the lights the way that you or I might when we come home and we feel a little spooked. Instead, he let the screen fill up with shadows. He knew that what the audience couldn't see would drive them insane. Well, if I can't see there, what could be there? Who could be there? And what kind of knife would he have? It's always about manipulating what the audience sees or what you want them to see and how you want them to feel. Picture that scene right after Lori discovers Annie and Linda and Bob's dead bodies. She's sobbing in the hallway next to a dark doorway where Michael's white mask slowly, patiently, agonizingly emerges. It seems like there's nothing lurking, and then slowly, um, John's description was, it's like the audience's eyes are getting used to the dark. So, you know, I, I put a little light with a dimmer, and turned it all the way off and then very slowly brought it up a little bit, a little bit, a little bit um, till the audience could see Michael Myers lurking. It was this intake of breath. An intake of breath? And then a screaming release. (laughs) Dean used the science of how our eyes adjust to darkness to intensify our fear. And he does it again in that closet scene. It's dark when Laurie hides in the corner, clutching only a wire hanger for protection. But then, Dean and John did something wonderfully cruel. They had Michael Myers reach into the closet and turn the light on, so that we get temporarily blinded by the bright swinging bulb. And then, Laurie turns the light back off, 
just so the audience would have to spend more time blinking and adjusting our eyes and freaking out about what we can't see. But even so, get this, when John Carpenter showed his first rough cut of Halloween to the studio, they were not impressed. One executive called it boring. Why? John hadn't added the music. He needed that stinger, that needle jab we just heard, to tell the audience to be alert. Here, let's put on the opening credits of the film and really soak in his score. Go ahead and picture that flickering jack-o'-lantern if you like. It's a deceptively simple song, but listen for a few things. First, listen to the layers. Try to pull them apart and identify what each one does to your nerves. It doesn't get talked about that much, but there's that insect sound that's scratching at your brain, making you feel all anxious and itchy. Then, after a few measures, the heavy, plodding chords come in. The sound of something relentless, something that you can't escape. And then the song gets fuller. Synthetic, psycho-esque strings. They fill up all the space. They're suffocating. And then John kills them. He kills the chords and he strips the song back to suspenseful simplicity to return your focus back to that piano melody. That unusual, bizarre rhythm is written in 5-4 time, which means 5 beats per measure. Most songs have 3 beats or 4 beats or 6 beats per measure, so when we hear 5, it sticks out, it sounds weird, it puts us on edge. John learned that strange rhythm from his dad, a music professor. How did he teach you? I got a pair of bongos for Christmas, so... My dad said, let me teach you five, four time. We sat down, and he did. Pop, 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 And I banged it out on the bongos. And then that was the beginning of the idea for the Halloween theme. John Carpenter is one of the only modern Hollywood composers to use five, four time. But he wasn't the first. That would be this theme song that I bet you'll recognize immediately. And it's no coincidence that the Mission Impossible theme and the Halloween theme are two of the most instantly identifiable scores ever. Their weird rhythm just makes you nervous. It says that something strange is going to happen. I like that you kind of led into making something that would make the audience just anxious. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. A rep- repetitive little phrase over and over again that would get you, oh dear, what's going to happen? And tell me if you're surprised by this fact too. John? unsentimental John, who made this movie 40 years ago and very loudly wished he wasn't so good at freaking people out and had instead gotten famous making westerns, has the Halloween theme as his ringtone. It's touching, honestly. Even a little sweet and vulnerable. And, of course, when I call him on it, John does his best to sound cool. Actually, it's my wife's. I I hate cell phones. So every time somebody calls your wife, you hear your... Yeah. Does it ever get annoying if the phone rings too much? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't know. It's all fine. Everything is good. I have no complaints in life. I'll be honest, having the Halloween ringtone on my cell phone would stress me out. Hard pass. But maybe John has built up immunity. 
For the rest of us, after this quick break, we're going to talk about the side effects of scary movies and ask if our love of horror flicks can go too far. Once again, this episode of Halloween Unmasked is presented to you by Shudder, the premium video streaming service for all you creepy cats out there. Now, Shudder has the largest, fastest-growing, human-curated, by very smart horror experts selection of thrilling and dangerous entertainment. It is the Netflix for horror, and it is so good. You're going to love everything that you find on there. You're going to discover old horror films you never saw, and you're going to hear about the new wave of horror that you got to just start surfing right now. Now, Shudder, as you know, one of my favorite things about it is their curators, like Sam Zerman, who you heard, they put together these programs of films based on themes. So if you're in a certain type of horror mood, but you don't know what you want to watch, oh, it's awesome. One of the collections they have now is called Schools Out Forever. And that is if you're a person who likes to watch horror films with school connections. We're talking Battle Royale. We're talking Dead Girl, which is super creepy. Of course, we got Jamie Lee's Prom Night, but you also have Prom Night 2. There's Dario Argento's Phenomena, which if you're in a Dario Argento mood because we're just talking Suspiria nonstop outside in the real world, you got to check that out. And even cuter stuff, like Heathers, Winona Ryder, Christian Slater, who does not love Heathers? Another collection they have right now is called Get Rad, and that is dedicated to awesome, awesome, awesome 80s horror films. This is where you're going to find your Creep Show 2. This is where you're going to find your Beyond. You got your Sleepaway Camp. You got your Gate. Oh, you're going to have the best, best, best movie marathon. Shutter works on everything. It works on your iPhone. It works on your Apple TV. It works on your Amazon Fire TV. It works on your Android. So just get started today. It's $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year. And if you want to try 14 days for free, just go to Shutter.com slash podcast and use the promo code UNMASKED. That's Shutter.com, S-H-U-D-D-E-R.com slash podcast, promo code UNMASKED. And get spooky. And we are back. And as I'm thinking over our conversation with fear expert Margie Kerr, it seems that the pleasure of fear only works when you know that deep down you're safe, that all the bad stuff is on the screen. But every so often, fear goes too far, and horror movies are accused of inspiring real-life violence, too. That human empathy that makes us care about the victims, it sometimes makes us empathize with the villain. To some, they look at the killer, at their lack of fear, as a personal dare. Like, could they be capable of killing as well? I don't believe that every person who loves Michael Myers is twisted. I don't believe most of them are, by far. But we do have to talk about why some critics are afraid of horror movies, afraid of why we like them, and afraid of what someone who takes them too far might do. Well, can movies inspire people to kill? Yes. They give shape to the scripting. So it's it's a cocktail of, of, of things. It's never one thing. You might recognize the voice of Peter Vronsky, the author of Sons of Cain, A History of Serial Killers from the Stone Age to the Present from Episode 3, where we talked about the psychology of Michael Myers. As he points out, this argument that horrible images inspire horrible crimes is ancient, and it encompasses everything. Pulp magazines, pornography, fairy tales, even old violent woodcuts. You know, the Bible has influenced serial killers as much as pornography has. So uh, this kind of condemnation of uh, female sexuality is deeply ingrained, of course, in in the Christian faith um, as as well. Historically, they're all Halloween. (laughs) You know, fairy tales are, you know, where Halloween starts. (laughs) So, so, you know, certainly that's not the the solution, nor is, you know, um, necessarily necessarily taking guns away because serial killers will kill with their hands. So Vronsky doesn't see the point in banning horror films when the Bible is legal. But 
Psychologist Dr. Tobia from that same episode does agree that when we watch Halloween, our minds aren't as innocent as wanting to save Laurie Strode. I honestly think that when we watch these at an unconscious level, we identify with the aggressor more often than we would like to admit. And when that happens, we figuratively and literally see aspects of ourselves projected onto the big screen. And I think that resonates with some people. I mean, talk about identifying with the aggressor. John Carpenter literally opened Halloween with putting us inside Michael Myers' head in that long tracking shot. And in Rob Zombie's Halloween, young Michael Myers is this bullied kid from an abusive home. He's very empathetic up until the moment he begins to kill. We're about to hear a 911 call from a 17-year-old boy who saw how that Michael Myers could murder without emotion, and then he decided to find out if he could do that too. The call is real, and if you'd rather not hear it, it is absolutely okay just to skip ahead a couple minutes. Ponsford County 911, where is your emergency? Uh, My house. Okay, what's the emergency? Uh, I just killed my mom and my sister. What? I just killed my mom and my sister. You just killed your mother and your sister? How did you do that? With a gun. After watching the Rob Zombie remake of Halloween three times. This is what he wrote in his confession. Quote, I was amazed at how at ease the boy was during the murders and how little remorse he had afterward. I was thinking to myself, it would be the same for me when I kill someone. So when the boy finished watching the movie again, he put the Halloween DVD back in the case and he threw it in the trash can so that people wouldn't find out that it influenced him. I just just thought it'd be quick, you know. (laughs) I I, I didn't want them to feel any pain. That's why I used the gun. (laughs) But it was was like everything went wrong. This whole call, which is hard to listen to and really impressive as the 911 operator stays on the line, keeping the boy calm, away from the gun until the cops come, it sounds like someone emerging from a trance. Like he'd gone so deep into the movie screen that he didn't really think death was real. I don't mean to sound like a wimp or anything, but, you know, this is... (laughs) Wow. I've never, like, done anything violent in my whole life, you know? You don't sound like a violent person. No, you don't. But his mom and kid sister were dead, and he's now in prison. In that confession, he also wrote about snapping back from fiction into reality. He said, I know now, though, that I'm done with killing. It's the most dreadful and terrifying thing I will ever experience. And what happened last night will haunt me forever. But the people who argue that scary movies cause crimes have one more case to point to. Around 10 million people caught the Halloween remake in theaters, and millions more saw it at home. Only one kid picked up a gun and blamed it on Michael Myers. But we are living in a time of fear, inside the theater and out in the world. When I first met John here in my town of L.A., a grocery store manager had just been killed that weekend in a shootout. And so in between talking about the movie and Bowling Green and everything else, we were both so rattled that we couldn't help talk about that, too. We got to fix this somehow. Uh, I know. And your generation's got to do it. Because mine screwed it up. We fucked it up, pardon me. We did. Everything seems motivated by this fear, this giant fear. It's one of the two scary stories that we we can tell. One is the evil is inside or the evil is outside. Right-wing evil is always outside. It's them. Different color skin, different way they talk is different. That all that goes way back to us tribal. We're sitting around the campfire and we've just come out of the trees. And the uh, 
the witch doctor says, I'll tell you where evil is. It's out there in the woods, in the darkness. It's the next tribe. And they're going to come in here and things will be impure. And they'll take you over. That's right-wing evil. Left-wing evil, same situation. We're sitting around the campfire. Witch doctor gets up and says, I'll tell you where evil is. It's right in here. And he points to his heart. It's in each of us. We have the capability to commit evil. The good man chooses not to and fights against those impulses. The good fight back against fear. Treat your neighbor like you want to be treated. That, that's a whole secret. I don't want to be a hateful person. I, I just don't. I don't. Maybe you, too, feel like you've spent most of your life like Laurie Strode, innocent, oblivious, until suddenly the news has turned into a screaming nightmare. I, I am really interested to see how horror changes in the upcoming years, because we have, as a society, been through this this just slow burn of crisis of uh, not knowing who to trust. And I think that there is a, a, a crisis of fear. You know, people want to reclaim their fear. That's what I, I talk to a lot of my students about reclaiming their fears so that they they know, you know, what to, to truly be afraid of and have more confidence in themselves to know that they are capable and competent and that while the world might be scary, uh, they'll, be, they'll be okay. Reclaiming our fear. That's something that's been on my mind a lot, though not until Margie said those words did I have the right phrase in my head. Turning that fear into action, knowing that we can survive this. Horror films remind us of that, too. You know, we're ancestors of the uh, humans who had the wit to, to uh, you know, strategically kind of avoid danger, but also the bravery, really, the courage to to seek out, to, to go and explore, to be curious, uh, but also, you know, have the um, this threat response that would allow us to get away and uh, survive to to fight another day. <laughs> Wait, that sounds like you're saying that we as humans are all the final girl. Yes, yes, we really are. Um, and it's it's something that uh, has kept us alive. We really are capable of, of so much. And, uh, you know, watching scary movies is a, is a nice way to be reminded of that. Horror movies do inspire us, for bad and for good. And we inspire them. For example, right now, I've seen a lot of the upcoming movies focus more on the revenge horror. And I think that that really is reflecting where we are right now with movements like Black Lives Matter and Time's Up, um, Me Too. All of that is now being translated through our horror movies into something that we can have a sense of, you know, feeling like we, we have a, a sense of control over it, feeling like we have a, a cathartic way to deal with it, translating current day concerns into monsters that we can defeat on screen. In fact, right now, you, wherever you are, you are joining me in participating in something beautifully human. Our, you know, obsessive reading or listening to podcasts and stories and, you know, all of these different ways to, to understand mass murderers and killers is really our attempt to try and understand something so unimaginable. And it is through engaging with things that are, you know, repulsive or uh, or violent, that we are reminded of our humanity, that we're reminded of love, of compassion. And it's kind of a paradox, but I think it, it makes a lot of sense that we can be reminded of our own humanity through the 
inhumane actions of, of others. And take some of that empathy and extend it to Laurie Strode, even when we're screaming at her through the screen. We do see a lot of characters, you know, doing the exact opposite of what we think they should be doing. So they're running up the stairs when they should be running out the front door. And part of that is because when we are, you know, truly terrified, all of our resources are focused on our body. So we're not thinking rationally. We're not thinking strategically. It just is kind of total brain shutdown um, so that we can uh, focus on getting away. But unfortunately, we do see that that is <laughs> sometimes futile. I mean, that sounds like a defense of Jamie Lee throwing the knife away after she stabs Michael Myers, like, twice. Yes, yes, I know. Yeah, it's really, you know, we we hope to to think that we would make better decisions. And I think that, you know, watching scary movies and practicing being scared can maybe, you know, contribute to better responses in the moment. Which, also, to be fair, one of the reasons we yell at Lori for throwing away the knife when she's downstairs on the couch is not actually her fault. It is Dean and John's fault. When Jamie Lee played that scene, she was reacting to the fact that the knife is covered in blood. Up close, the knife was super gross, and she thought that the audience would understand her revulsion. But Dean and John kept the scene so dark and shadowy and so far away that we can't really see the blood or the expression on her face. That is their bad, not hers. But the second time she throws away the knife, come on. Still, unless we've been chased by a guy with a knife, who are we to judge? Actually, meet Joe Scott. Tall, bearded, a strong-looking guy who on the scariest night of his life, a night where there really was a guy with a knife, he thought of Laurie Strode. At this year's Comic-Con, he stood up and told his story. Hi, my name's Joseph, and I want to ask a question from Jamie Lee Curtis. Yes. Uh, First of all, I'm just really grateful for the movie Halloween, because 34 years ago it saved my life. Um, I was in a situation where someone had cut the phone wires and a guy was running around with a knife. Um, I was scared out of my mind and out of nowhere, this thought inside me went, well, what would Jamie Lee Curtis do? <laughs> um, our, our dog, Duchess, uh, bit up these uh, knitting needles and so I grabbed them out of the trash and I saw the guy with the knife on one side of the house. I ran down, ran down to the neighbor, started screaming like you did in the movie. <laughs> and the guys, I said, well, what's in your hand? I said, they're just knitting needles. And they said, not with those knitting needles. We're not going to let you in our house. But to make a long story short, I'm here today because of the way that you portrayed Lori Strode. I'm a victor today instead of a victim. Just like those people that you were talking about. Wow. And I never thought I'd get it. You're the only reason I came to Comic-Con this year. And as Joe started to cry, Jamie Lee Curtis got off the convention stage to give him a powerful hug. So, horror movies save lives, too. Our attraction to fear is good. So when we watch Halloween in a theater and we squeeze someone's hand or we share a gasp with someone next to us who we might never see again but is right now our neighbor, when we make eye contact with a stranger afterwards and we trade grins, let's just come out and say it. We are doing something good for humanity. And to hear Joe and the Comic-Con crowd, fandom is good. On our next episode of Halloween Unmasked, we're going to head into the heart of fandom at the H40 40th anniversary Halloween convention in Pasadena, right where the murderous magic first happened. Utterly fantastic! Why don't you just walk over? I will probably drive. 
But join us as we meet our fellow creepers, hopefully all of whom will be wearing pants. Well, I can't come now. My clothes are in the wash. Excuses, excuses. Oh, shut up, jerk. God, I've got a shirt on. That's all you ever think about. See you in episode seven. Halloween Unmasked is a co-production of The Ringer and Neon Hum Media. It was written and hosted by me, Amy Nicholson, and our producers are Jonathan Hirsch, Zach Mack, and Greta Weber. Production assistance from Kaya McMullen and Karen Navatia, and additional support and a special thanks to Bill Simmons, Sean Fennessy, and Juliet Littman. And an ultra-special thanks to you creeps for listening to Halloween Unmasked.